Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov and I'm the director of the Global Symmetry Project. The Global Symmetry Project work, research, uh, can be found at globalsymmetryproject.com. It's uh, my pleasure today to invite back into the virtual studio my good colleague Paula Subaki. Uh, this is for uh, Summit, uh, Summit Dialogue, episode 28, interviewing with her uh, on the G7, the NATO Summit, and the upcoming G20. It's uh, really rolling into um, Summit uh, season, and we've just seen um, the G7 meeting, followed by uh, the NATO summit, and I uh, wanted to uh, talk to Pavla about her examination and, and conclusions around these summits and also to look forward to the uh, G20 summit, which is uh, in Indonesia, Bali, in uh, the uh, in November. So, let me uh, describe just briefly uh, our, our guest. That is uh, Paolo Subaki. She is a professor of international economics and chair of the advisory board at the Global uh, Policy Institute, Queen Mary University of London. And she's also an adjunct professor at the Department of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Bologna. Previously, um, Paula was the director of the International Economics Research at uh, Chatham House for quite a period of time, some 10 years, and she is also now the founder and director of Essential Economics, an independent economic research service. Her most recent uh, book was uh, The Cost of Free Money. Uh, published in 2020 by Yale University Press. So it's my great pleasure to welcome back into the virtual studio, Paula Subaki, and let's uh, welcome her into the studio. So uh, welcome, Paula. It's good to see you again, <laughs> or at least hear you. <laughs> good to hear you and uh, Alan, and thank you for inviting me again to your podcast <laughs> it's a pleasure it's a pleasure so <clears throat> as i suggested in the introduction um uh, we're kind of entering into summit season it seems uh and so it's worthy uh of us to take a look at um, or to talk about uh, uh, the most recent G7 summit, which is the German summit, which took place just a couple of days ago at Schloss M. Lau. And I guess uh, the opening question to you, Paula, is um, what did you take away from that two-day meeting? Um, what, what do you see as the results, positive and negative, uh, from that meeting? Well, it's actually difficult to be particularly excited about uh, this uh, meeting. It, I would say then it started very well, beginning of the year. The, the, actually, the context then was significantly different because uh, it was uh, when Germany took over the presidency of uh, the G7 2022. Um, we were mm -hmm. actually recovering uh, after the pandemic, and in particular, Europe looked very promising, and uh, you know, we've uh, in particular, with uh, 
the money available for this uh, uh, next generation EU to invest in infrastructure um, and renewing the infrastructure, the digitalization, the green transition, and so on. So it looked very, very promising. Now, then the situation changed radically uh, at the end of February when Russia invaded Ukraine. And obviously, that changed the agenda to some extent of the G7. And so uh, I would say this G7 is a war G7. And I use this word carefully uh, because obviously the G7 are the countries that have taken a very, um, I would say, clear and decisive uh, role vis-a-vis Russia and the Ukrainian invasion. And mm-hmm. I would say, and this is right, I, I, I totally agree with uh, taking a clear stance uh, and reiterating the, the fact that it is unacceptable and it is bad that mm-hmm. uh, a country invade the sovereign territory of another country. So in that respect, it's good that the G7 made the first point that they communicate uh, about the war and they emphasize their condemnation and uh, and their commitment to do whatever it takes to um, fight this war without use, using, uh, let's say, conventional weapons, but using right. uh, sanctions right. and uh, economic, the economic and financial weapons. Um, so that is good. What is missing here is something that take on, keep on board the developing world and then recognize the fact that you know not all countries care, let's put it very bluntly, about the war in Ukraine. Uh, a lot of countries, they see this as a very Western reaction, so we need to explain why this is important. And mm-hmm. so there is no effort in the G7 communique, and, and as far as I know, nothing coming out of the summit then suggests, yes, this is what we, we do because we think this is the right thing to do because we are liberal democracy and we value and defend uh, democratic values and the rule of law in, in, in international relations. But also we are trying to explain mm-hmm. and to take keep on board countries that might not see the world with our eyes. You see what I mean? Yes. Um, you're, you're aware, of course, that Germany, as is normal, invited a number of, of guests uh, to the G7. It included Argentina, India, Indonesia, Senegal, South Africa, and interestingly, the Ukraine, not surprisingly, I suppose. Um, while some of these invitees reflect, um, you know, kind of regional hosts, uh, Senegal being an example, because, uh, you know, they're um, uh, chairing the AU at the moment. Uh, why do you think uh, Germany, you know, invited these these individual countries, uh, these countries? Is there a kind of thematic here or some view from Germany as to why to include uh, these other countries? Um, I, quite frankly, I don't know. I don't know if there is a view. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's it, normally these the choice of countries is up to the the chair, and sometimes right. it looks totally random and based based simply on the 
you know, relationship friend, and, and also the interest uh, and the bilateral, uh, you say, uh, relations that the chair has yeah. with, yeah. with a number of countries. Yeah. Obviously, I can see why Ukraine is in the pack. Um, it's interesting. I know I, I can see why Indonesia is in the pack in, in the sense that it's the G20. I can see why um, right. yeah, South Africa and Senegal are in, in the pack. So, but then again, as you know, um, one thing is um, to be at the main table. The other thing is to be invited. And, uh, and you, right. you remember very well, because we discussed this at length at the time of the G20 summit in 2009, followed by the G8 at the time was G8 because Russia was still part of it in right. Italy. And do you remember there was the Eilingen Dams dialogue that was launched by yes. the G8 to invite the big uh, emerging market economies around the table? And China yes. didn't like yes. it. And the others didn't like it either because they say either we are here together mm-hmm. as you know peers or what are you calling me in just for the dessert or you know i'm around the table from the beginning and and i'm part of the you know what is my role here that was the the question and so you know i got some question marks around the invitation of other countries and who are not members of the G7 or even the G7. well in in particular let me let me raise it with you the obvious missing uh there are a number that you could look at, but most most evidently, uh, it is China not being invited, uh, though India was invited, though Indonesia was invited. And indeed, uh, you've um, uh, written recently uh, about, uh, you know, the, the negative impact uh, that we've seen of uh, the Biden administration in terms of uh, reaching out, if I can say, put it this way, China. In fact, you wrote, if the West excludes a power like China from its multilateral arrangements, what can China do other than spearhead alternatives? A better approach to China would be based upon three considerations. The first is that multilateralism is impossible without China. I mean, is the, I'm assuming that's your view of uh, China generally and potentially its exclusion here. Yeah, I mean, again, China is the second largest economy in the world. It could be, uh, or maybe even the the largest, depending on how we measure the GDP of China. Um, First of all, I don't think it would be possible to invite China to the G7 without a specific role. China is not a member of the G7. Therefore, right. it would be difficult to invite it. And I don't think an invitation like that, unless it's carefully constructed, but it's something mm-hmm. I don't see right now, it would be difficult. Now, the question is how the question remains is how we keep China engaged. And so in my new report on the China's in the multi in, multi, in the multilateral uh, financial architecture. Um, with the subtitle, which is to me very uh, significant, which is keeping the two keeping two tracks on one path. Exactly this: mm-hmm. you know, China has the ability and the capacity to go on on its own. 
track, you got the financial capacity to come out of the multilateral uh, uh, financial architecture. Not that they want to do it, but then it's not a scenario we can uh, discount. It's low probability, but it's possible. And it is possible mm -hmm. in particular if, if the West and especially the United States raise the stakes so high that it becomes not worthwhile for China to, to stay engaged. And that would be a real disaster because we will, the fragmentation that everybody's talking about will really right. happen. And it doesn't happen because we get, you know, developing countries to feel uncomfortable about, you know, being, let's say, led by the big developed countries. Mm -hmm. But this, the fragmentation happens if China moves out because that will, mm -hmm. because we will feel the impact because it, it becomes, you know, China has the capacity to build an, an, another system. And we saw it already in, um, you know, China built, is led the establishment of two um, uh, multilateral regional development banks. And one in particular, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is very much, you know, a, a Chinese creation, Chinese-led, creates a lot of tensions with the United States. But on the other hand, as I say in my report, it, it is, you know, it plays by the book. Uh, and, you know, very good governance following yeah. the, the World Bank, a um, lot of partnerships, you know, very high standard, and so on and so forth. So again, that shows that China can create institutions, multilateral institutions, right. and can be engaged in these institutions. So let's not push the envelope too much and, and risk okay. breaking is uh, this. Okay. Is well, you know, it is interesting because if you, uh, and I'm sure you have obviously read the, the leaders communicate, there are, you know, serious criticisms laid out uh, about China, uh, its behavior and its actions, East China Sea, South China Sea, Hong Kong, Xinjiang. And in fact, the communique urges China to act uh, to stop Russia's war on the Ukraine, but you know what? You, what what doesn't seem to be there is any kind of laying out of a program of collaboration. I mean, you could imagine the U.S. and the uh, other G seven members talking about uh, the COP fifteen, uh, which is uh, the gathering on biodiversity. It's led by China. There's a real commitment by China with respect to the Biodiversity Convention, even though the, the chairs had to move to Montreal, in fact, to, to complete the COP15. Nevertheless, China has shown real commitment. Also, um, you know, uh, if you look at it, um, there could have been expanded and expansive statements on the uh, sustainable development goals and Agenda 2030. The Chinese have been long committed to the sustainable development goals, which most countries in the world agreed to back in 2015 and indeed touted by China at the G20 summit in Hangzhou in China in 2016. And yet, if you look at, there are statements there, but they're completely vanilla statements, right? Say nothing, don't, don't 
look to any program policy urging China to collaborate. I mean, is there seems to be a real dearth of thought given to the U.S.-China, the G7-China relationship. Is that where we're at? Yeah, um, it, 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 is, it is actually a correct, um, I would say, overview. I, I agree with you. Um, back to my definition of a war uh, communicate, that's what we see there. And uh, there is this idea that by bashing China, we can obtain results and we can have the outcome that we want. And I think that is, at the very least, uh, uh, disingenuous. Um, <laughs> it doesn't help. Um, we know then then China, again, they told us many times that they don't like interference in their domestic affairs. And this is really right. is the, the sort of the kernel of this issue. Um, they don't like to have, in particular, United States, States telling them what to do. Um, right. This is why I think, and I had hoped that the G7 led by Germany could really give, a, let's say, a European flavor to the engagement with China, to the approach to China, right. which is softer and more nuanced. And, and there is more understanding that China is not a monolith, but is made by very different elements. And so you can break these monolith and and deal with the various components and on specific issues and we know that there are issues where you can engage china you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, climate um, environmental sustainability the green transition which was the big theme in the uh, china's uh, uh, g20 in 2016 I would add also the issue with debt, and in particular the bilateral debt in which yes. China is involved with many countries, mm. in particular in Africa. So again, these are areas where cooperation exists and can be continued and can be uh, fostered and uh, and expanded. Uh, but obviously, if you say, well, China does, you know, you need to do what we tell you to do, is it doesn't have. That doesn't mean not to recognize the problems, that, the many problems sure. that are associated with China. But, you know, the, the reality is um, China is not a liberal democracy and is not a market economy. And, you know, forcing the issue and, and, and asking China to behave like a liberal democracy and the market economy I think it's a waste of time, effectively, and creates okay. unnecessary tensions. So, so let you know for this session, let's wind up by kind of pitching forward to the G20 meeting, and this is in Indonesia. This is the beginning, a very critical period for the G20, because you have Indonesia that's currently the host. You're going to then follow uh, with um, uh, India. You're then going to follow with, I'm not quite sure the order, but here, but Brazil at some point and South Africa. So all these major uh, economy, developing uh, and emerging market economies um, are hosting. Um, you know, ha has, the, has the G7 really missed an opportunity to kind of uh, reach out? Um, 
you know, you you can remember along with me the old guard with respect to the global summitry. That at the time of the creation of the G20 leaders in 2009, 2008, 2009, there was real uh, talk about the G7 or the time G8, and you know, simply being ended and fold or folded into the G20. And yet, you know, it would seem at this point. Um, uh, that in fact the G7 is is simply more uh, separated from from the G20 than other. So you know, what's the state of health of the G20 at this at this point, Paula? Well, this is a very interesting question. I remember very well our discussion at the time when the G20 was the new kid on the block, but the G20 was That's actually right. born out of a first G7 initiative because it was, uh, yeah, you know, Paul Martins, Prime Minister of Canada, that really Former the, yep. the 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 G20, and then it was. Uh, um, President Bush that actually suggested to uh, create is to elevate the G20 at the time was still a, a finance ministers and central bank governance meetings in to elevate right. to a, a leaders meeting at the time of the global financial crisis and it was a great idea recognition that the world was not yep. only the G7 that we need to engage you need to bring you know you need to have at the same table at the same level being peers with the big uh, emerging market economies. And that's why what we said early on in our conversation, the highly Gandhian dialogue of the G8 2007 didn't yep. fly uh, because you know, it was right. like, we G7 invite you big developing countries <laughs> to our table, no way. So the G20 was that. Now, at the time we saw that it was just a matter of time for the G7 the G8 to be phased out. Actually, mm -hmm. it happened and the G8 became G7, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. after the invasion of Crimea, yeah. then the yeah. Russia came out. In a sort of unclear way, basically, it was a mutual agreement to separate the G7, the, for Russia to, to lead the G7, the G8. Um, and so but the G8 becoming back, going back to the G7. Um, now, the trouble with the G20, the G7 became more prominent, in particular during the Trump presidency, and it mm. was a, somehow <laughs> the G7 were able to to do to have something done as opposed to the G20, where there was really a lot of tension because of China in in the room with uh, with a very uh, difficult. Uh, American president. Yeah. yeah. And so, and that really created a big fracture. You know, the mm -hmm. G the G20 is no longer a place where China feels comfortable. And that is the reality. Mm -hmm. And this is everybody mm -hmm. around the table tells you exactly the same story. You know, up to 2016, uh, basically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Chinese presidents of the G20 the G20 was a good forum for the major economies in the world. Afterwards, it mm -hmm. became, and China was very engaged. And now after that, we've obviously moment because there were discussion, there were issues, there were, you know, op strong opposition on some points. 
you know, that was part of the dialogue. But after that, you know, from 2017 onwards, it was less of a comfortable space for China to be because mm-hmm. of the fundamental, I would say, fracture in, in, in the approach. Mm-hmm. So the approach was not longer the, you know, uh, let's say, responsible stakeholders, but it was like us against you. And now this us against you and the friends and foes kind of club you know, obviously the club of friends against the club of foes is has now become a sort of it's becoming more crystallized in even in a mm-hmm. in a thinking that was mm-hmm. expressed quite clearly by Janet Yellen a few months ago. Mm-hmm. 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 So the question is how you fit China in this thing. Um and and the other big problem we have now with the G20, how do you fit Russia? And we saw what happened at the finance minister meetings uh, back in April when the G7 yeah, yeah. and some of the others switched off their videos. Well, for those who were online, their cameras for those yeah. who were online, or they just walk out of the, the room when Russia uh, was the turn of Russia to speak. Wasn't great. Was not. Was probably the right thing to do to some extent because of the situation in Ukraine. Ukraine. First of all, maybe it needed to be prepared because obviously now Russia is provoking uh, the G20. And so by saying we will be in Indonesia, it means like it's pushing the ball into the G7 component of the G20. Say now, guys, you said I would be there. Now you have to tell me then you don't want me to be there. And you need to be very clear. And then how are you going to push me out? It's, it's, it's not an easy story. And again, going forward in um, uh, 2023 with India, and yeah. so at the other breaks, um, it will be an interesting story. First of all, it will be interesting to see how much the BRICS, so the big developing countries, own the G20 and this international dialogue, right? So, and the big question mm-hmm. is, could you be in the driving seat or you just need to have always one of the big guys to basically lead the dialogue? Or can you do it yourself? That would be an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, it would be an interesting test as well to see whether these big developing countries really value the multilateral dialogue or they just respond in an opportunistic way to mm-hmm. the current mm-hmm. and short term political and geopolitical tensions. Well, I want to thank you, Paolo, for this uh, really interesting discussion around the G7 and G20. Both you and I have way too much history with <laughs> with these institutions. <laughs> you know, we got we got to get a life here. <laughs> but but thank you very much for uh, uh, joining me here in the virtual studio. 